Does manual treasury management and operations have your crypto business stuck in the slow lane? Scale up and speed ahead with Fireblocks, the number one platform for crypto operations and trading pros that makes custody, settlement, and rebalancing quick and easy. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all of their crypto assets in one place. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. I'd also like to give a shout out to Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API-based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking at crossriver.com crypto. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, Director of News at The Block. And joining us today on the show, wearing, of course, his Cowboys hat, is our very special guest, Peter Smith, CEO and co-founder of DecaUnicornBlockchain.com. Not too many companies that have that moniker or can bear that moniker. Peter has been on the show twice before, but if you don't know about blockchain.com, if you're a new listener or a new market participant or entrance to the crypto world, blockchain.com is one of the longest operating crypto financial services platforms. They kind of started off as a wallet, but they do a lot more today on the retail and institutional side. And of course, he's an early adopter of the show. And recently... I don't write as much as I used to, but I did have a story on blockchain signing a sponsorship deal with the Cowboys. This was a pretty big deal. One of the first, I think it was the first or one of the first big deals in the NFL with a crypto company. So maybe we can start there. What was it like? What was it like meeting Jerry Jones? <laughs> well, you know, we had to do something big to bring you out of retirement to write another story, you know? But uh, no, so it is It is the first deal uh, between a crypto company and an NFL team approved by the NFL. And I think, you know, a big moment for crypto, as we, you know, talk a lot about the mainstreaming of crypto over the last three or four years. And I think one of the things that really got us excited about the deal was the Jones family and working with another really founder-led business uh, with the Cowboys. You know, Jerry is incredibly sharp incredibly future focused and they've really just built a really impressive organization out there in texas 
not just from a you know football perspective, but from a business perspective. And it's been really inspiring to get to know that and and you know see and learn how their business works. Well, you were kind enough to carve out some time before the news dropped to talk through the deal. And we hit on some interesting points that I thought would be cool for the listener to kind of take part in through the show. One of the questions I asked was like, what is the main goal of something like this, right? Is it is it more on the, you know, the retail side to get more wallet or exchange folks signed up? But you mentioned something interesting, which is there's almost like this intangible element of having blockchain.com next to the Cowboys logo that could even open the door to more institutional deals. So maybe there's like a, a small hedge fund in, in Dallas and they see blockchain.com and they were thinking of getting into crypto and now they, they see a brand that they can trust because it's next to this, you know, one of the most famous teams in America. You know, the Cowboys are a really special brand in the sense that they're the most valuable sports team in the world. They also have more fans than any other sports team, you know, in the United States. And I think they're in second overall globally. The thing about the Cowboys as well is that they're very unusual for them to pick up new sponsorship deals. Like they don't really turn over. Uh, and so it is a, you know, a brand of quality and, and of trust and, we're super honored by that. You know, the retail stuff is interesting. We should talk about that. But on the institutional side, I think one of the things that people know less is, one, how key the institutional business is for us. It's about half of our group revenue. And two, how big Texas is for us. Because a, a space that we're very active in is the trading space, of course, and there's a fair amount of trading in, in Texas, but also the, the crypto mining space. And you know when you look at crypto mining in the United States, Texas is a really big market for that. Uh, and so, you know, we've already got quite a few clients down there and looking forward to, you know, building that out. I think there's also something really fun about taking clients to an NFL game in the Cowboys Stadium. You know, it's kind of a, a pretty unique experience and you know, we've got a fantastic setup there. And so I'm, you know, looking forward to do the institutional stuff as well there. You know, the retail side of it's super interesting. When you really study kind of these marketing deals, you're basically looking for who has the biggest fan base, the demographics of the fan base, and then the TV side of it. And, you know, the Cowboys have about 30 million fans in the United States, which is about 10% of the American cow, you know, population. They're also the team that's on the most primetime TV slots in America. You know, they play the Thanksgiving Day game, right? And so for us, we really wanted to work with them because of the fan base and the, the TV exposure. And then our advertising is actually behind the end zone. So, you know, when you're uh, looking at the ESPN highlight reel or watching the big game, you know, you're going to see that that crypto message right there which is going to be kind of fun, you know, particularly Thanksgiving Day. You know, you won't even be able to escape us on Thanksgiving Day, Frank. Thanksgiving has historically been like almost like a crypto holiday. It's <laughs> like 2017, that's when the market peaked and then things started to unravel around Christmas. So, you you talk about demographics. It was it was funny before the show, I was talking to our intern Davis about about this deal. 
he helped me kind of compile a long list of um, all the crypto sports marketing deals. And he asked a question, which, which I thought was a good one. Basically, he wanted me to ask you, like, let's say the median savings in America is like $5,000. He doesn't understand why crypto companies are going after sports fans because out of like these millions of fans, like how, how much money can they possibly have that it's worth it? It really honestly depends on the team. So you can buy demographic data on all the sports teams and it does vary really widely, like household income and investable assets you know, from the Jacksonville Jaguars to the Green Bay Packers to the Cowboys is really going to vary quite dramatically. And then it varies across sports as well. So, you know, basketball, baseball, NFL, the NFL trends higher and the demographics for the Cowboys specifically trend very high. But so, for example, like, you know, household income and investable assets at you know, the Patriots, the Cowboys, you know, the Fahrenheit Niners, it's probably order of magnitude higher than the rest of the league. And this is also part of like the first step or the first domino to fall for your broader big marketing push. What, what should we expect to come next? And, and what's your like thesis around it? So we're very counter cyclical in the sense that you know, when everybody else is doing one thing in the market, we're using doing another. <laughs> um, and so last year, you know, there's enormous amounts spent in brand marketing, mostly by, you know, two or three names, you know, and some of them spent, you know, 700 to a billion in commitments in one year. We didn't really want to be in that market because like if everyone's doing something, it's a little bit like the uh, Genesis carry trade, yeah. right? Everyone's doing it. And so if everyone's doing it, your best case scenario is that you're just going to be as good as the next guy. And your worst case scenario is you're all going to get ripped together, which, which is what happened with the Genesis carry trade. In the marketing sense, like when people started to come out of the market, both on the brand side and the paid acquisition side, we felt like there was a real opportunity in the market to push forward there. And so you'll see us do quite a lot in the marketing side this year just because, you know, frankly, there's a lot less activity in there. So it's less crowded, which makes it more attractive for us as a market opportunity. So what are you going to do differently moving forward? I mean, when you think about it, a high level strategy for us, it's all about ROI, which is what is the marketing cost us to purchase versus what are we getting for it? And as the crypto market gets euphoric, that ratio gets out of line. Like what you're spending isn't generating enough value. When the crypto market gets less euphoric, as it has been the last six months, that value trade-off becomes more clear. I got to see you in Miami. That's that's one form of euphoria. Well, Frank, that's because you're here for the technology. Yes, that's true. You're not here for the money. You're here for the technology. Yeah, that's Um, true. So then you know you're always euphoric. But... But that value trade-off does come back into line. So our general strategy is to be monitoring that value trade-off. And then depending on what's going in the market, we deploy or we don't deploy. But this year, I expect us to deploy a lot because the market is so much less euphoric. We'll see if others pull back. We'll see if crypto.com pulls back. They've been doing a lot. 
so what about the Cowboys specifically? I remember in the press release, you guys delineated a bunch of different, you know, key objectives that, that are part of this deal, different experiences, commercials, maybe giveaways. If you come to a game, maybe you get, you, you open up your blockchain wallet, you get some crypto, maybe what, what's it going to look like? Well, I think there's like, you know, my, you know, kind of three favorites. There's a bunch of stuff that we're doing with them, but my three favorites are one, the end zone advertising, because I think that'll be really big for crypto and for us specifically from a brand perspective, just on national television. The second is we're putting a QR code on every seat in the stadium. It's a hundred thousand person stadium, you know, which is like the entire weekly active user base of most DeFi products. And then, uh, and then the third thing that I'm really excited about doing is doing these uh, fan experiences where we'll basically like select people from our user base to like meet the players, go to the game, be in the locker room, like all kinds of like really cool stuff that you really can't have access to otherwise. And I'm excited about using that as a conduit to spending more time with our customers. Dean wants to know why he couldn't get the name. Rights probably weren't up for sale. Well, the the Cowboys are the sports team is worth nearly what we are. So you know they're a twelve billion dollar franchise. So I don't think you're I don't think you're buying the Cowboys or buying their name. Yeah, they're not going to give that up too easily. And by the way, that's generally kind of how we trend. Like we want to work with the biggest and the best. You know, not just a team because we can buy their name or buy them out. Throwing some shade. So you guys were in Bloomberg News earlier this week. Talks of an IPO. Why? I mean, just why would you want to be public right now? You don't need the money. You can go out and go go raise it fifteen billion and get some more money, sixteen billion. Look at this stat. I tweeted it um, just before we started recording. At this point, FTX is valued higher in the private market, thirty-two billion dollars. Then Coinbase is in the public market, $31.04 billion. Down from, well, what was it, like $80 billion when it went public? I think you'd have to go look and see where their secondary is trading to really know. You had to really do a head-to-head, which you could do. But um, look, you know, I can only really comment on our plans and, and what's going on over here. I think we will be a public company someday. And probably sooner than later, that story, I think, was a slow news day at Bloomberg. You know, we haven't done anything in the last 60 days, you know, that's different than what we've been doing for the last nine months, preparing to someday be a public company. And we are, we did hire bankers around that time, but we hire bankers to do a lot of things. We hire bankers to help us buy companies. We hire bankers to help us raise debt financing. You know, there's a multitude of banker tasks. Uh, and, you know, we didn't hire bankers specifically to take us public, you know, the week before that Bloomberg story came out. But, you know, sometimes sometimes reporters get excited. I don't want to give Bloomberg. T- well, yeah. Remember when Kraken, it was like every other week people would report that they were going public. That story kind of well, came out like 17 different times. That story has come out like 15 times. Also, like strangely, the BlockFi one. Like every 60 days, it's like, BlockFi is going public. And you're like, oh, n- no, 
Yeah. So, yeah, it's just people get excited, Frank. People get excited. get excited. I get it. All right, putting the report aside, putting even blockchain.com aside, let's just speak broadly. Like, why would any crypto company go public in the next few months or the next six months or even think about doing it? Well, <laughs> are you a masochist? I've been running a crypto company for a very long time, so clearly <laughs> I'm a masochist. You know, I, I think that if you're going to be a public company, you have to acknowledge that the market and how it feels about you is going to go up and down, right? Like Tesla, which is at a trillion now, they, they had some dark public days, right? They also had a lot of retail people buy their stock, ride that up, and now they have you know, a really passionate fan base because of it, right? So I don't think you want to go public when every, you know, when all of the big gains are already over, right? So I'd like to go public and then, you know, take the stock up 10, 20x as a public company. I don't see going public as a liquidity event for me. And I don't see it as like the end of building the company. I very much think of it in like a Tesla or an Amazon context or, you know, where you want to go public, get the shareholders in, get the customers aligned, you know, and then perform really well as a business and get another, you know, 10, 20 extra shareholders in the five years after the IPO. So if you want to do that, you, you actually don't want to go public at the absolute top tick in the market. The, the other thing too is, you know, I think Coinbase, when they were originally planning to go public, was planning to go out at like 20, 25 billion, mm. right? And then the crypto market and the equities market got really, really hot, right? So if you ask the Coinbase team, you know, two years ago, do you feel good about trading between 30 and 40 billion? They probably would have said yes, right? And one of the things that you learn when you've been running a crypto company this long, you know, is that the market comes, the market goes. Ultimately, you have to look at this stuff on a five-year, 10-year time horizon, because if you kind of try to drive yourself crazy saying, okay, you know, I should have raised that financing in quarter one because quarter one was wild, or I should have, you know, I should go public here. Or I should, you just, it's not a way to build a long-term business, right? And so I think people get a little too caught up in that stuff. Like this private financing we raised, arguably you couldn't have picked a worse time. Yeah. You know, crypto blew off, global equities blew off. There's a land war in Europe. Like, maybe that's not a good moment, you know? But you, at the end of the day, you're here to build a business and you're, you're here to build something that is around in 40, 50 years. This stuff doesn't really matter over that kind of time horizon. So that's one aspect, like sort of the, the cyclical nature of crypto being, you know, a, a sort of – she's not always your friend – but I also think part of the difficulty is around the framing of the stock to the street, right? If you think about, if you look at Coinbase's roster of analysts, right, it's the same folks who cover CME, CBOE, the exchanges, the brokerage houses. But crypto companies, and this is where I want to get your, your opinion, can probably touch a lot more than just the classic exchange businesses. There's metaverse, there's retail opportunities, there's gaming. So let's say you were going public, like how would you position the stock to be something that's more broad than 
what exists on Wall Street. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's partly why we're so careful to not talk about ourselves as an exchange. Because we don't think of ourselves as an exchange. We really think of ourselves as a crypto company. And eventually, that will be a category. <laughs> yeah. Just like people think of Google as an internet company. They think of Amazon as an internet company. They don't really think of uh, Google today as like a search engine company, right? Because it does a lot of things more than search. You know, you don't think of Amazon as an e-commerce retailer. They have an e-commerce business and it's big. But you don't think of them as an e-commerce business. You think of them as an internet company. And so I think one of the mistakes crypto people have made over the last five, 10 years has been wanting these perfect analogies when they don't frankly exist. And you know this because you used to cover actual TradFi companies. Like Exchanges don't make money on trading fees. They're data businesses ultimately, right? It's the name of the game. That's not how crypto works. Data is all free. You don't charge for market connectivity or data in crypto. So even if you are an exchange in crypto, you're running a very different business with very different revenue dynamics. And in crypto, we've been you know, really kind of lazy about wanting to take a shortcut that says, okay, we are, we are crypto, but we are the E-Trade of crypto, or we are the Goldman of crypto, or we are the Nicey of crypto, or you know, whatever. You don't create like a fundamentally valuable long-term company that way. Because if you were, if it was just the Nicey of crypto, Nicey would just do it, right? So in some ways, we've kind of suffered from a lack of imagination as an industry. But I think it partly comes back to how hard it was to raise capital in the early days. You know, and that makes no sense now, because now raising money is in crypto is kind of a whole different game. But when you go back to the beginning of crypto, like, you know, we raised our Series A at 120 pre. And it was like the highest price round in crypto at the time. It was super difficult to get done and we had a million users. <laughs> right. So and I wasn't and the number one question you get is like, okay, what is this Bitcoin thing? What does a business look like in the future? You know, and investors needed these simple analogies. But in some ways, we've kind of grown past those, I think, but we haven't really presented ourselves as having grown past those. And I think that holds the space back and it also holds back the valuations in the space as well. So I'll give you an example with, with Coinbase. So with Coinbase, you know, their analysts coming from the exchange world, they're looking at Coinbase and they're saying, your fee revenue, you know, is too high, right? You're not making any money in data. There's too much retail and they're getting hit for that. But Coinbase isn't the nicey and it never will be. It's not ice, you know? The problem, though, the you know sort of second derivative problem of that is that there aren't crypto analysts. There's exchange analysts and bank analysts and internet company analysts. And so just like the internet companies had to wait for there to be internet analysts, we're going to have to wait for there to be actual proper crypto analysts on the on the buy side. So here's the interesting thing, in my in my opinion, Alicia Haas at Coinbase, the CFO. I remember like covering Coinbase in 2017 and the whole thing was Nisey of crypto. Then they kind of changed it. I think I saw Google of crypto touted or floated. But when I spoke to them before the IPO, I asked her, what's the comp? 
and she said Coinbase is the Coinbase of crypto, which I think is kind of a good, that's like kind of a good line, in my opinion. Like, it's like, yeah, we're different and we're all different. Like every single company, there's not really an amazing comp for it. But then that makes it difficult. But honestly, the analysts aren't even the problem. Like the analysts have really high price targets for some of these publicly traded companies. I think every single analyst covering Coinbase has a buy rating except for like one or two. It's just the market doesn't get it. So, I mean, we're kind of talking about the analysts, but it's but but that's almost moot. The market just I mean, the market just doesn't like growth stocks overall right now. It's a tough time. Yeah, I mean, you've got you know, two things going on there simultaneously. You've got the, you know, the general fear in equities and people kind of rotating out of high growth stuff. You've got the newness of it. They're also kind of out there by themselves, which is never helpful. But like, you know, look, take this all the way back to what I said at the beginning. I don't think a lot of this matters over the five to 10 year horizon because it would only matter if people were running short of capital. And no one's running short of capital. So what does that mean for M&A? Is it still tough to like get a good deal? When you buy a company? Yeah. You know, M&A is interesting. One of our board members, when we first started thinking about doing M&A, was like, because I was really hung up on prices. I was like, this needs to be 3% lower. He's like, look, you know, the reality is you'll either always underpay or overpay for every deal because either it really works and it almost doesn't matter what you paid or it really doesn't work and you wasted it all anyway. Yeah. And I think within a certain limit of reason, there's truth to that. You know, it's hard to go do good M&A deals, but I think what we have learned to look for the most is a real alignment between the way the teams want to build and if you can get that alignment, the deal usually will feel pretty cheap in hindsight. The other thing that you know is healthy about the M&A market right now is that there is a, a widespread acknowledgement that you need size and scale to compete over the next three or four years. And so a lot of the deals that happen now are about a team that's been successful in one vertical, wanting to be part of a bigger platform with scale and with balance sheet. And so that, to some degree, has made M&A deals easier to do. When are we going to start to see, like, the big companies in the space start to consolidate? You mentioned everyone has ample amounts of capital. When do we see, when do we see compression or consolidation among the well, big players? There's not that many big players, actually. This is what we were talking about in Miami. Right, like... There's a lot of people in that, like, you know, call it one to four zone, maybe 15 companies there. There's very few people in the, you know, 10 plus zone. And there's not a lot of synergies between the 10 plus zone players. <laughs> and so it makes it hard to hard to do a deal to some degree. Now, I do think you'll start to see some combinations of the people in the one to four zone and, and the 10 to 20 zone. You'll see one or two of those this year, probably. But I don't know who, and we don't have anything in the works. <laughs> Nothing in the works on your end. <laughs> I mean, the most interesting thing that you've seen there is the, you know, the news out of Turkey. That would be a very interesting deal if it comes together. 
Having trouble keeping pace with the crypto boom? When your business is scaling up and your portfolio is growing, you don't want to waste precious time on manual treasury management or settling and rebalancing. Fireblocks can handle that for you with smart, scalable solutions for your crypto business, along with industry-leading security and expertise. They'll take care of the back end so you can focus on the big picture. Visit fireblocks.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Coinbase Prime, an integrated solution that provides institutional investors with an advanced trading platform, secure custody, and prime services to manage all their crypto assets in one place. Coinbase Prime fully integrates crypto trading and custody on a single platform and gives clients the best all-in pricing in their network using their proprietary smart order router and algorithmic execution. Futuristic companies like Tesla and MicroStrategy have already used Coinbase's comprehensive investing platform to execute some of the largest trades in the industry. Build a unified investment portfolio with one of the most trusted names in crypto. Learn more by visiting coinbase.com prime to get started today. This episode is brought to you by Cross River. Building the next big thing in crypto? Then it's time to get your fiat on and off ramp solution from Cross River. Whether you're a crypto exchange, NFT marketplace, or wallet, Cross River's integrated API based platform provides the payment solutions you need to grow. Cross River is powering the future of financial services. A CryptoFin industry award winner and an early partner for companies like Coinbase, Cross River's tech stack supports crypto partners and enables real-time money movement for consumers. Welcome to a new world of crypto-friendly banking. Request your fiat on and off-ramp solution now at crossriver.com crypto. So what about... Um... You guys have an NFT marketplace in beta. What are you thinking of for that? That's a that's a good way to diversify your revenues there. That's a juicy revenue source. I think they can charge like 250 basis points for a trade. I don't think we'll charge 250 basis points. And I think that's one of the advantages of having a company with a lot of different revenue lines is you can play with the pricing a little bit. I think 250 is uh, pretty wild. The thing that I'm excited about with the NFT space is is less like million dollar NFTs and more, you know, fifty to a hundred dollar sort of fan stuff, um, which I yeah. think is going to be very cool. I think the challenge in the NFT space is probably, you know, around quality control, and so you have to do some work there. But when you think about gaming. NFTs and the potential like business vertical of selling people non-fungible digital goods that cost a median of $50 to $200. You can get very excited about that. It's also just going to be fun. You know, like we've all been trading ETH and Bitcoin for too long. There's some stuff you could probably do with the Cowboys. You know, there probably is some stuff we could do with the Cowboys. So that could be, what are we thinking? That could be podcast number four or five, man. <laughs> Perfect. All right. We already have you booked for the next show. Well, you always have talked about, like, I think you tweeted in January that 
in 2022, you're, you're going to ship some awesome stuff. Let's pull up the tweet. I went back into the uh, archives. You were stoked. So we're halfway, uh, not halfway through the year, but what else should we expect? What are you really excited about? We're a quarter of the way through the year. And, uh, you know, I think for us, the NFT marketplace is going to be the next big thing out on consumer. And, you know, we're really, really excited about that. Kind of in a less, you know, headline way, we're pouring a lot of resources into Latin America. That market's really growing so fast and really needs a different product than our kind of core European consumer product. And so we're building out local product teams, you know, local engineering, local marketing, and making a really long-term bet in that market over the next three or four years. And that's something I'm super excited about because of the way they use crypto in Latin America, which is in a very transactional, you know, stablecoin dominated way. And it's super, you know, just learning from our team that's working down there has been really interesting for me because we've been talking about this. People are going to use crypto for their daily life idea for, you know, a solid eight years. And finally, there's a market where I see it happening. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really excited about that, you know, even away from the sort of sizzle of the NFT world, which is very sizzly. But you know, the thing about Very the thing about the NFT world is there's actually not that many users, right? Like if you look at 30-day OpenSea users, it's like a couple hundred grand, and you know that's just measured on unique Ethereum addresses. And you know we probably all have two or three unique Ethereum addresses we're using on OpenSea, so it's probably like 200 grand, you know. And so that market is still very nascent. There's, you know, millions and millions of people using crypto daily life in LATAM. So how would you um, outline your strategy for that region? What, what exactly are you looking to do? Daily life value. So how do we mm. generate value for you as a, you know, Brazilian or Uruguayan or Argentinian consumer with our app? Right. So it's not as investing focused or as, you know, DeFi focused or whatever, but just how do we how do we make it easier for you to do the things you need to do in your financial life on a daily basis? And that's part of why I'm so excited about it. So what type of things like, well, how will the app maybe look differently there than? So we'll make it really easy to move money between countries, including, you know, the U.S. and Latin America. We'll do a lot of stablecoin denominated, you know, current account services, card services. We'll make it really try to make it really easy to do online shopping, which is a key consumer need. Mm. And that kind of thing is not as, you know, with the NFT marketplace, you can say like, look, we're building a cross protocol, cross custody, mobile first NFT marketplace, and it's going to be super yeah. sexy. You know, to go into the weeds of LATAM would be a 30 minute podcast. Right. But I think well, we have some time <laughs> and would be our GM of LATAM who, you know, you could have on the podcast. That'd be fun. Um, Definitely. But that's where a lot of value is generated for users and where you see a lot of this thesis of we're going to build a whole new financial system on the Internet play out. And a lot of times what we've seen in the technology space over the last five years is 
is really the emerging markets lead to develop markets. So if you think about WhatsApp or even Telegram, that stuff was popular far outside the US and Europe before it was popular inside the US and Europe, right? Android's another example. You know, if you weren't watching, if you were only watching US data on handset sales, you wouldn't have seen the Android phenomena coming. So a lot, yeah. a lot of times, you know, the rest of the world really leads technology adoption. And I think we're seeing that in crypto now. And it's really, it's a really important trend in the market that I don't think gets enough airtime. Yeah, it's definitely um, something we're trying to even like expand with our own staff. I feel like a lot of the ongoings there are pretty undercovered. Maybe, maybe you should uh, send a team to uh, Buenos Aires. Go visit, go visit the, uh, the blockchain Buenos Aires crew. I should. I should just go down. I mean, I've been doing probably way too much traveling, but it's definitely on the list. So one of my goals for the rest of the year is less crypto conferences. And more just meeting with teams around the world. Actually, the way I say it is more crypto meetups. Meetups. Right? Because like back in the day, you used to go to these meetups, and that's where you found the energy and the community and kind of like the closest ear to the ground, right? And I think for me this year... You know, obviously, we we're just a Bitcoin Miami together as a big, a big shindig. I think you know, wanted, I want to spend more time at the meetups and at the at the developer meetups, and less time at the crypto conferences, because in some ways, the crypto conferences have become kind of major productions, rather than you know a very large Bitcoin community meetup or crypto community meetup, which is kind of initially what they were. You've been in crypto more than most people who come on this show. Has the spirit of it changed? Like, do you think that, you know, to some degree we're losing some of our pizzazz or, or the true spirit of, of what this is all about? You know, I get that question a lot because I'm, I'm, I'm now like the old man in every room. I think that there's always been that concern, right? So even my generation that showed up, because I wasn't first generation, First generation, you know, was probably like 30 people. Um, yeah. And there was even concern then, you know, like, is this good, right? Yeah. Is it good that Peter Smith is showing up now? <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't about me. It was actually the first big one was about Silicon Valley getting involved in Bitcoin, which I was not Silicon Valley. Still, I'm not Silicon Valley. So... You know, I think that crypto changes and the people in it change. And I think it's mostly a good thing because you need that new energy. You need more talent in the space. You need people trying to build things and do things to make this all useful. I do think the part that's made me, you know, that I find hard to deal with nowadays is every time there's a big, you know, crypto hype cycle, there's like a huge layer of people, like I, I just call them value extractors rather than value creators that enter the space. And they're around for like a year, right? And then they get washed out. And sometimes they even come back, which I find really interesting. But that's kind of, you know, it's a bull market phenomena. And, you know, thankfully, you know, we're now in a bear market. I don't know if you guys realize this. We're in a bear market. Probably been in one for a year. And That'll, you know, that'll, there'll be a cleansing effect, which you have to also love. But I think that's one reason why I want to get more in the meetup, less in the conference, 
because you kind of, you know, you find more of the builders at the meetup. Yeah, the true believers. The Frank Chaparros of the world. Yeah, you know, like the trend of like, you know, big name DJs at crypto after hours events at conferences. It's like, you know, then you can't even talk. You can't even talk about the cool stuff you're building. I know. That was what it was like in Paris, which I got very ill afterwards. I'm recuperating. It might have been COVID. I might have gotten COVID, Peter. It finally got me. But yeah, you couldn't hear anything at the the after events. It was just, you know, difficult. Yeah, and that, you know, I'm there to hear the crazy cool new ideas. You know, like if I want to go listen to club music, I just go do that. Go to the club. I just go to the club. So what what are some of the cooler ideas you've been hearing out there? We're spending a lot of time in the cross-chain protocol space. So, you know, how do we bring all of these weird and wonderful protocols together, right? Uh, so I've been going pretty deep there. And there's some really cool work being done uh, there and in the whole IBC, you know, ecosystem. And then I think, you know, getting ready for the whole staking paradigm that's going to really change things in the next year or two is, is spending a lot of time. I mean, that's a big moneymaker. Mm-hmm. I hear Kraken's making like hundreds of millions. And of course, the thing that you have to always be careful in the staking space is that that's, you know, gross revenue. Okay. Because you actually give most of the revenue back to your users. So the net on it is low, but it's still an amazing business. And it's an amazing thing for consumers. Yeah, it really is. I also think, you know, if Ethereum pulls it off, it has a pretty high chance of turning Ethereum into the number one chain because they cap the supply, they're burning. And then when you buy Ethereum in a staking world, you'll be buying, you know, a a yield producing asset. It's almost like a bond. Right. And it'll be interesting to see how all the other chains adapt to that new paradigm. I had someone on the show a few, I think it was at the end of last year, where he said basically if ETH were to somehow surpass Bitcoin in value, it would just make this like it would unleash Pandora's box of of market not chaos, but it would add a new dimension of volatility because you'd have no ceiling then. Anything can, I mean, you can go way more parabolic. Yeah, I mean, particularly in the bear market and in the bull market, like when you're in a firm paradigm, everything kind of trades very correlated. If Ethereum eclipsed Bitcoin from a volatility perspective, all hell would break loose. Yeah. Um, you know, or any other, you know, chain eclipsed Bitcoin or for what it's worth, even if like, if near eclipsed Ethereum, all hell would break loose on a volatility front. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, crypto really has like three kings, Bitcoin, Ethereum and Tether. <laughs> mm. And, you know, if any of those, you know, if Tether gets, you know, beat by another stable coin, that probably doesn't bring you know, a lot of volatility. But if either of the two kings get, you know, flipped by anything, 
that will that will introduce a whole new trading paradigm. And I think you'll see not just a lot of volatility across the space, but a lot of trading models break across the space, which induces more volatility. And then, you know, of course, like when trading models break, it often breaks firms. So it'd be a very interesting yet dangerous, yet full of opportunity time to be alive. It's definitely a fun time to be alive, despite the price action. You know, the price action is what it is, you know? Is what it is. Although, I said that to one, one of our, our one of our editors. Um, I forget exactly what he asked me. I was like, "It is what it is." He was like, "What the fuck does that mean? It doesn't mean anything." I was like, "That's the point." <laughs> it's like the equivalent of like being an old grandpa and just being like, "I don't know." Yeah, you yeah. know, just like throwing your hands in the air <laughs> and being like, "Who knows? Who knows?" But we were having this funny lunch conversation the other day. I was like, you know. You got to think about Bitcoin not just being down against the dollar, but like it being down in purchasing power because of the dollar inflation, right? So like you got to layer in like another eight and a half percent on top. Oh, no. My poor heart can hardly bear it. It's funny. So last time you were on, it was September. It was September last year. So not too long ago, but I was asking the same questions. I was asking, are we, you know... Are we entering a bear market? Are people prepared? Are we even in a bear market? And and I think I said that we're prepared, and I don't know. And I'm telling you now, yeah, we've been in a bear market. That interview probably marked the start of a bear market. <laughs> there was like one last pop, and then it was like, oh, yeah, here we are. Yeah, September 1st. Um, and I think it's kind of, you know, anyone that raised – you know, through December and that, so that kind of includes January announcements of funding rounds, I think really nailed the timing and anyone who raises now, I'm very impressed by. Yeah. I'm very, you know, when I look across our investment portfolio and our founders that are, you know, raising around, you know, going to raise around this year, you know, with financings that happen now, particularly not, you know, the series A or, you know, seed, which is kind of unaffected so far. But, you know, the later the round you go, the more affected it is. And I'm very impressed by any of those. Well, Peter, always good to have you on. Always good to hang and jam, particularly on a Friday. You know, I need to actually check Twitter real quick because I asked Twitter what questions I should ask you. Let's see, did they say anything good? We need to check. Oh, first question. Why did you shave your mustache? Good question. I had to do a bunch of like traveling in April and it just makes me insanely recognizable. So, you know. So you were tired of the life of celebrity that you were living. Yeah. It was the equivalent of like wearing sunglasses and a hat. If I was like, you know, Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie. I'm just tired of the unwashed masses trying to, you know, touch me. (laughs) (laughs) oh my goodness well now that we've solved the great mystery of your mustache uh we can we can go enjoy our fridays peter smith what do you got going on this weekend i've got about 400 emails some hiking and uh hopefully go uh go to the beach nice well with that all said i'd like to thank you for joining the show today 
always appreciate you stopping by. You're part of the Platinum Club now, being that you've been on the show three times. Once again, we've been joined today by Peter Smith, CEO and co-founder of CryptoDecaUnicornBlockchain.com. Peter, where can our listeners follow you and learn more about what you're working on? Give us that plug. Twitter, Instagram, all the things. It's just one more Peter, all words. And then more importantly, you can find us at blockchain.com. We'd love to have you as a customer. Bingo, bango. Thanks again. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll be back for you again with another great guest, maybe two, maybe three. Can't wait to see you.